It's indeed beginning to look a lot like Christmas all across the nation, even a little bit here in Atlanta. And I want to talk today about what it means to look a lot like Christ. And I hope we're all doing that. At least I hope we're all on our way to doing that. And we're going to talk today about what repentance looks like and how that plays a role in the salvation process in relationship also to the Christmas season. Thanks for listening. Let's get going. As always, you can find this original article at the blog, ryanafrench.com. It's titled, It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christ. You can put that in the search engine or it should be right at the top there. I love the Christmas season and I love Christmas music too. I'm one of those annoying people who starts listening to Christmas music way too early. And one of my favorite, slightly frivolous Christmas ditties is the song, It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas. Penned in 1951 by Meredith Wilson, it's been a holiday staple since its first iconic release. You've most likely heard it played many times. Admittedly, at first glance at least, it isn't the most Christ-centered Christmas tune, for sure. But it's catchy, and its melody is fun and family-friendly. And uh, I recently heard it's beginning to look like Christmas in a store shopping with my wife, and it lodged in my brain and would not let go. We had a few snow dribbles that same day in downtown Atlanta on our way to dinner. So that imagery combined with the song created a memorable Christmassy scene. It really was beautiful. And that's a rarity here in Atlanta. The song paints vivid word pictures of how stores, streets, hotels, landscapes, and people begin to show the not-so-subtle signs of transforming in preparation and anticipation of Christmas. Stores glisten and streets glow and kids hope people's visages visibly change and winter snow dominates the scenery. The atmosphere described in the song is beautiful, happy, transcendent, expectant, and surrounded by death. Epiphany blindsided me on that wintry day as it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas jangled around in my brain. While we're beginning to look a lot like Christ, we're inevitably surrounded by the transformative beauty of death. Winter is the season of the completion of death. Throughout the fall season, leaves struggle to stay alive, and vegetation does its best to hold on. But winter always wins, and old things pass away in preparation for new life. Philosophically, there's a strange perceptual dichotomy at play in wintertime. On the one hand, we can view winter as stark, harsh, and bleak. But on the other hand, Glowing lanes, candy canes, church bells, and carolers out in the snow can change our wintry perspective. All the joy mingled with the austerity of winter might seem enigmatic. However, it isn't, because we know the cold will give way to warmth, and new life will bloom in springtime. The inevitability of death precedes the miracle of life in the natural order of the universe. The universe's ability to produce new life from death isn't by accident. The maker of the universe designed it that way. 
and he mirrored that same spiritual law in the lives of human beings. The invisible maker visibly manifested himself in the form of a man and became the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. That's Colossians 1, 15 through 23. And because our sins deserved physical and spiritual death, he willingly died in our place. The cross displays a more remarkable perceptual dichotomy than anything else imaginable. Calvary was a gruesome, bloody, agonizing, humiliating scene ending in the unjust execution of a guiltless man. Yet it was the most beautiful sight the world has ever seen because it symbolizes God's profound personal love for us. That's Romans 5.8. And in return, all Jesus requires of us is our death, burial, and resurrection. Thankfully, we don't have to die or be resurrected from a grave physically. Our death, burial, and resurrection are spiritual events made possible by the work of Jesus on our behalf. The Bible repeatedly teaches us that before we can have new life in Christ, we must die. Old things, ways, habits, lifestyles, mindsets, ideas need to pass away. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Those old things don't die naturally, so we crucify them with repentance, Romans 6.6. We brutally nail our sinfully embedded affections and lusts to a cross and allow them to perish, Galatians 5.24. God doesn't force us to do this either. Our carnal flesh hates the idea of dying to self. But repentance is the only part of salvation that we must do completely alone. At baptism, someone else baptizes us in the saving name of Jesus, Acts 4.12. We consent to be baptized, and we participate in baptism, but we don't perform it. Dead people don't bury themselves because they're dead, and dead people can't baptize themselves spiritually either. Likewise, when we're filled with the Holy Ghost, which is our spiritual resurrection, we can't fill ourselves, Acts 11.15. God pours out His Spirit on us and dwells within us. That's Acts 2, 1-4, Ezekiel 36 and 27. Once again, we are merely participating and consenting to a divine process. Repentance alone is the gateway that leads to baptism and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Without repentance, a person just gets wet at baptism. And without repentance, God will not give us His Spirit. When we repent of our sins, we are willingly offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Look at Romans 12.1. And that's not a one-time thing. Authentic repentance is a commitment to pick up our cross and regularly die to sin. When Jesus commanded us to carry our cross daily in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, it was a reminder to take the burden of repentance with us at all times. Why? Because continual death to sin releases joy, abundant life, power, self-control, and authority in Christ. Consider what Paul said to the church in Colossae in Colossians 3.3. He said this, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So just as Christ became literally dead in the tomb, so we, by virtue of our connection with Christ, have become dead to sin to worldly influences, pleasures, and ambitions. Or, in other words, we are to be to them, those old ways, as if we were dead. And they had no more influence over us than the things of the earth had over Jesus while he was in the grave. But what does it mean to be hidden with Christ in God? That, that's a little uh, harder to understand at first glance. Certainly, Paul was alluding to the idea of secrecy and safety in God. Our life and salvation are secure in God, 
when we're dead to sin, but we're not literally hidden from the view of the world. No, the, the meaning of the word hid here goes deeper than merely being out of sight. The term hidden can also mean concealed in the Greek. The implication here is that our life is unknown or better yet, it's not understood by the watching world. But these unseen realities of our salvation and the mysteries of what it means to be spiritually minded will be revealed to the world by God in due time. Look at 1 John 3, verses 1 through 2. The spiritual death of a sinner produces a saint that is continuously misunderstood by sinners. It's not possible to be a true saint of God and be understood completely by the world. Why? Because we've come out of the world and we're separated from the world while we're connected to God. Therefore, as we begin to look a lot like Christ, which is what we're called to do, the dead weights of sin begin to fall off the branches of our lives. When the leaves of sin are falling one by one, we know that a joyous death is about to take place, and winter is coming. Old habits take their last gulps of air. Fear and condemnation lie on their deathbeds. Carnal thinking is being transformed. Sinful, dysfunctional relationships are severing as the joy of salvation and holiness begin to take root amidst the chill of winter. The death is harsh tear-soaked, unrelenting, yet it's one of the prettiest sights to see because Christ's image is being made manifest in human life. That's the miracle of the Christmas story and the miracle of what it means to become more and more like Christ. sipping a Coke Zero with Espresso, the official, unofficial, non-paying supporter of this podcast. I want to thank my wife and kids for giving me the grace to spend so many hours writing and recording for Apostolic Voice. Without their loving support, this wouldn't be possible. Apostolic content like this is never going to have big corporate sponsorships. We depend on your kindness and generosity. So if you're wondering what you can do to keep programming like this alive, you can give as little as 99 cents per month. That's only $12 a year, the price of two lattes. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's only the price of one these days. But you can go to www.anchor.fm forward slash apostolic voice forward slash support, and you can give there. You can help us get the word out by giving this program five stars and a short review on iTunes. That really improves our rankings and podcast searches, and it helps get the word out. Every like, share, and kind word on social media helps other people find us as well. But most importantly, you can pray for this ministry. Thank you for listening and for being a part of the Apostolic Voice family. This poem is called If Jesus Came to Your House. I don't know who the author is. I've tried to, to track it down. It seems like it's just been around for a long time. It's an old reading or poem, you could say, really more of a Christmas reading than a poem. But my grandmother and my grandfather used to read this to me 
quite often as a kid, and it stuck with me all of these years, and I thought it fit perfectly with our theme today. And so I'm reading today for you, If Jesus Came to Your House. If Jesus came to your house to spend a day or two, if he came unexpectedly, I wonder what you'd do. Oh, I know you'd give your nicest room to such an honored guest, and all the food you'd serve him would be the very best. And you would keep assuring him you're glad to have him there, that serving him in your home is joy beyond compare. But when you saw him coming, would you meet him at the door, with arms outstretched and welcome to your heavenly visitor? Or would you have to change your clothes before you let him in? Or hide some magazines and put the Bible where they'd be seen? Would you turn off the radio and hope he hadn't heard and wish you hadn't uttered that last loud, hasty word? Would you hide your worldly music and put some hymn books out? Could you let Jesus walk right in or would you rush about? And I wonder, if the Savior spent a day or two with you, would you go right on doing the things you always do? Would you keep right on saying the things you always say? Would life for you continue as it does from day to day? Would your family conversation keep up its usual pace? And would you find it hard each meal to say a table grace? Would you sing the songs you always sing and read the books you read and let him know the things on which your mind and spirit feed? Would you take Jesus with you everywhere you'd plan to go? Or would you maybe change your plans for just a day or so? Would you be glad to have him meet your very closest friends? Or would you hope they'd stay away until his visit ends? Would you be glad to have him stay forever, on and on? Or would you sigh with great relief when he at last was gone? It might be interesting to know the things that you would do if Jesus came in person to spend the holidays with you. Now, I know this reading is a little outdated because it's mentioning all kinds of technology like radio and even books that uh, mostly people are using tablets and things like that. But I think the principle of the poem continues on. In fact, it's more relevant than ever before. If you insert the kinds of things that we're dealing with today, the internet and television and all of the media that's pumped into our lives, if you insert modern things into the reading, I think you'll find it's more relevant than it ever has been before. I'm reading the story of the Christmas guest adapted by Helen Steiner Rice from an old Christian German legend. I remember this story from all kinds of Christmas plays and church readings from my childhood. I really hope you enjoy the story of the Christmas guest. It happened one day at the year's white end. Two neighbors called on an old-time friend. They found his shop so meager and mean, made bright with a thousand bows of green. And Conrad was sitting with face a-shine, when suddenly he stopped as he stitched a twine. And said, old friends, at dawn today, when the cock was crowing the night away, the Lord appeared in a dream to me and said, I'm coming your guest to be. So I've been busy with feet astir, strewing my shop with branches of fir. The table is spread and the kettle is shined, and over the rafters the holly is twined. And now I will wait for my Lord to appear and listen closely so I will hear his step as he nears my humble place. And I open the door and look in his face. So his friends went home and left Conrad alone, for this was the happiest day he had known. For long since his family had passed away, and Conrad had spent a sad Christmas day. But he knew with his Lord as his Christmas guest, this Christmas would be the dearest and best. He listened with only joy in his heart, and with every sound he would rise with a start, and look for the Lord to be standing there in answer to his earnest prayer. So he ran to the window after hearing a sound, but all that he saw on the snow-covered ground 
was a shabby beggar whose shoes were torn, and all of his clothes were ragged and worn. So Conrad was touched and went to the door, and he said, Your feet must be frozen and sore. I have some shoes in my shop for you, and a coat that will keep you warmer too. So with grateful heart the man went away. But as Conrad noticed the time of day, he wondered what made his dear Lord so late, and how much longer he'd have to wait. When he heard a knock, he ran to the door, but it was only a stranger once more, a bent old crone with a shawl of black, a bundle of branches piled high on her back. She asked only for a place to rest, but that was reserved for Conrad's great guest. But her voice seemed to plead, don't send me away, let me rest for a while on Christmas Day. So Conrad brewed her a steaming cup and told her to sit at the table and sup. But after she left, he was filled with dismay, for he saw that the hours were passing away. The Lord had not come, as he said he would, and Conrad felt sure he had misunderstood. Out of the stillness he heard a cry, Please help me and tell me, where am I? He stood disappointed as twice before, but shook off his sadness and went to the door. It was only a child who had wandered away and was lost from her family on Christmas Day. Again, Conrad's heart was heavy and sad but he knew he should make this little girl glad. So he called her in and wiped her tears and quieted all her childish fears. Then he led her back to her home once more. But as he entered his darkened door, he knew that the Lord was not coming today, for the hours of Christmas had passed away. So he went to his room and knelt down to pray. And he said, Dear Lord, why did you delay? What kept you from coming to call on me? For I wanted so much your face to see. When soft in the silence a voice he heard, Lift up your head, for I kept my word. Three times my shadow crossed your floor, Three times I came to your lonely door, For I was the beggar with bruised cold feet, I was the woman you gave to eat, And I was the child on the homeless street.